The book of Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Epaphrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray, continue to teach us from it. Uh, We know that nothing in your Bible is a dead letter, a dead book. We know that you have wisdom and, and that your Holy Spirit can apply it to us and to our time. And so we ask you to do that, Father. In Jesus' name and for the sake of his kingdom, amen. Now, it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. Now, there's another phrase that you'll hear when you hear that time referred to, and it is that this was a time in which men did what was right in their own eyes. The time of the judges, you hear both of those phrases being referred to, and yet I believe when, I believe Samuel wrote this, that's who most people believe wrote this. Now, it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled, So Samuel is pointing out the better angels of their natures by using that phrase. In other words, he's speaking of this as being a time in which the judges were ruling. It wasn't just people disobeying the judges or disobeying God and thus necessitating a new judge to come and rebuke or to defend the nation of Israel. When the judges ruled. Now, the next verse goes on to say, The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Epaphrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. So you have this man and his wife and his two sons travel off to Moab. Now this is serious, serious business to be leaving your nation, to go to another nation. And so you can't imagine that that was a flippant thing that Elimelech did. He did so only because he felt driven to do it, just as during the time of the patriarchs. You see Abraham and Jacob doing the very same thing. They escape a time of famine. Now, I want to talk about the meaning of the names. Elimelech, his name means, my God is king. Naomi's name means pleasant. Malon's name, the first son's name means sick, and Chilion's name means wasting away. So if both of these boys were named sick and wasting away, I have to assume that these boys were not very healthy. That while Elimelech appears to have been a faithful man of God, my God is king, Naomi was pleasant, their boys were sickly. So, let me paraphrase what has occurred so far in a different sentence. A godly man and his pleasant wife moved to Moab with their sickly sons to escape a famine. 
I think that's a way of generalizing what's, been, what's happened here. Verse 3. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now, that's a lot, isn't it? I mean, it's just a few words, but there's an awful lot of portent in those words. You have this tiny family, husband, wife, two sons, that have gone off to a strange land to escape a famine, and now the husband dies and leaves this woman with two sickly sons. She had to have been imagining, what on earth am I going to do? What can I do now? You have to imagine that she may have wanted to return home, but perhaps the famine is still going on. They left for a reason. And now here they are in a new land. You might think that she decided to stay, but I don't know that people who have just been bereaved in such a way and left in such a difficult circumstance, I don't know whether you can call what they do making decisions at that point. I mean, I just think it's inertia that led to her remaining in Moab. She's lost her husband. She lo she's lost her life. It's he that moved them here. The wife didn't decide to do this. Elimelech did, and now he's dead. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth, and they dwelt there about 10 years. So did they dwell there 10 years after the time that they were married? Did they just end up dwelling there for 10 years? We don't know. It's not precise. But I conjecture that her husband had died fairly early on in this, and yet she remained there. Her sons have now begun lives there, are bringing in their livelihood, no doubt, and yet now they've met these women, Orpah and Ruth, and they've married, and so they're beginning to settle down here in Moab. It began by saying that they went there to dwell, just as Abraham and Jacob did, went there to dwell to escape a famine, and yet now circumstances have changed. Who knows what their plans are? Their plans were disrupted by what happened by God. So now, despite being sickly, these young men have landed wives. Yay. Yay, Malon and Chilean. Now, they're Moabite women. These women would not have been highly regarded back in Israel because, you remember, during the time that they had come up out of Egypt, maybe a couple hundred years earlier, the Moabite women are the ones that had deceived them through Balak the king, Balaam the prophet. Yet, here they are. They've married these women, Ruth and Orpah. You have to think that things are looking up for Naomi now. Things have turned a corner. Things are improving. Then both Malon and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Now this is verse 5. This is a sad verse. So Naomi had moved to this foreign land with her husband and two sons. Now they're all gone. What she has left now are both of her daughters-in-law. Now, when I was going to have this not be a series, I was going to actually go on quite a bit and talk about a lot more, but we need to end it here, and so I want to kind of recap in some ways. This book is incredible. The book of Ruth is just incredible. 
Um, there's a man, I never knew how to pronounce his name, and I, name and I probably still don't, but his, it's spelled G-O-E-T-H-E, German man, writer, famous writer, lived back in the late 1700s. His name is Johann Goethe, I believe it's pronounced. I would have just called it Goethe, but that's not right. So I believe it's Goethe. So this was a German writer, very famous. He, he wrote this uh, tragedy called Faust. Non-Christian man. He was sensitive to, to Christ and the church, but yet he declared himself to be a non-Christian, and he had the lifestyle to prove it. So I can't argue with him there. But he described the book of Ruth as the loveliest, complete work on a small scale. The book of Ruth is incredible literature. I mean, the tragedy that it tells in just this, these few five verses I shared are themselves amazing. And yet it goes on to tell, and you will see it as it unfolds, much, much more beautiful. John MacArthur described the book of Ruth, what Venus is to statuary and the Mona Lisa is to paintings, Ruth is to literature. So you have this book that really is just a gem set in the midst of the Old Testament. And yet, thus far, what we've lived through, 10 years of the destruction of this woman's life. Naomi has moved off to Moab to escape famine, and it's out of the frying pan into the fire. Now she's lost her husband and both of her sons. Yet, you know, most of you have probably read Ruth before. We know that it doesn't remain a bleak picture of the future. Naomi's life was bleak at this point, however. And earlier in the prayer, uh, it was mentioned that we don't know the future. We don't know what providences God brings into our lives for our good that at the time seemed so, so bad. And they're not necessarily even for only our good. These providences, these dark providences, are for the good of the church, good of people that we know. We just don't know. What we do know, however, is that God knits us together in very meaningful ways. Ways that are important, ways that have meaning, meaning that we don't understand at the time that we're going through it. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. So God gives us a future and a hope. And as we go through the story of Ruth, obviously, you'll see that story of hope unfold in ways that are just miraculous. God knows us. He has plans for us. And he has us share in this table every week to remind us that we are his. We are called by his name. And our life has meaning. Our life has purpose. Even the dark providences that he brings. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your using your word to shake us out of our lethargy to have us to look beyond ourselves, our own uh, wants, our own desires, our own disappointments, uh, our own tragedies. We pray, Lord, that you would have us to see it from your perspective and to trust you, to not need to know what it is that you're doing, but to trust that what you're doing is necessary, what you're doing is done for our good and for the good of your people and your church. We ask you now to... Strengthen us with this bread and with this wine that we can serve you fully in the week ahead and grow our trust in you. In Christ's name, amen.